Jennifer Kennedy, the lead for Quality at CHAP, and welcome to this month's CHAPcast. I have the pleasure to speak with Jacob Martinez today, and he's doing some really uh, innovative and exciting things in his area in New Mexico. Hi, Jacob. How are you doing? <laughs> hey, Jennifer. I'm doing good. How are you? Great. So can you tell our, our listeners out in podcast land a little bit about yourself and your program? Sure. This is my first time to podcast land, so bear with me. Um, You're doing great. So <clears throat> a little bit about um, myself. I've been in healthcare business development for seven years now. I started in SNFs and then um, came over into home health. Um, I'm originally from the uh, western part of North Carolina, a very rural uh, area as well. So rural healthcare um, seems to be where I find the most, how do I want to say it, uh, not interest but stake because in, in some ways uh, having lived in rural a rural community, um, I know how it works and I know how hard it is in order to uh, have access to health care. Right. And, um, and of course, like we were saying before the show started, I did a stint in um, the D.C. metro area as well um, where there's lots of resources. And um, I, I left the D.C. metro area and went to Mexico for a couple of months on sabbatical and came to New Mexico. Um, it's a long story that we won't get into here. Um, but uh, so, so I work for Mountain Home Healthcare, which is a, a nonprofit um, home health care agency that provides home health hospice uh, private duty nursing, private duty caregiving services, as well as uh, now palliative care. We just, we just launched the palliative care uh, division in October um, during the pandemic and after about a year of planning in the middle of the pandemic as well. Um, so we're really excited to talk about that and to talk about too the, the challenges of being uh, in Taos, New Mexico is, is really interesting. So New Mexico, geographically speaking in square miles, three North Carolinas can fit in the state of New Is Mexico. That right? Yeah. Uh, North Carolina has 11 million people living there. We have a little over 2 million people living here. So the entire state almost is of a rural nature. And um, so we, we have a lot of challenges um, for folks accessing health care. Um, if I, were, if I were to be in a car accident, I would get shipped about two and a half hours away um, to receive, wow. to receive care right now. And then, of course, the demographic uh, poverty um, and uh, the age demographic, the median age is quite high in the state of New Mexico because lots of the younger generation move outside of the state uh, right, to pursue right. opportunities or school, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's just a little so brief overview. No, that's great. And I'm really excited to hear about your innovation. But before we go into that, um, I just wanted to let our listeners know that, um, Jacob, you're our first provider in our innovation series that uh, we uh, have started just recently, where we asked some providers just to say, hey, what, what have you done that's mm -hmm. been really innovative in your area that has worked and has been sustainable? And... Um, 
we've uh, I've talked to really uh, uh, several really uh, interesting people about what they've done and um, I'm really happy that you're here with me today to talk about your innovation so tell us about your innovation Jacob yeah I, I'm really excited that we're the we're the first one to to come on the show too because it often feels like by where we are and being a small nonprofit we're not a large corporation we feel looked over a lot so it's nice to know that we're doing something that's that's worth that that's worth talking about um, in in New Mexico in northern New Mexico specifically anecdotally there's no data to support this um, we do know that the is um, the Hispanic and Latino population elect hospice less than um, the white population does or the what we call Anglos here um, mm -hmm. and we know that the indigenous population elects it even less than the Hispanic or Latino populations and the uh, the white population Caucasian population Anglo uh, population is the minority here and so mm -hmm. by way of where we are culturally um, what works in DC does not work here and the oh, way right. we yeah. the way we educate is different here because the needs are different there there are different cultural needs that are happening here um, and so one of the things that we notice anecdotally just by comparing ourselves to counties with similar median ages um, similar populations um, we noticed that our hospice election between us and the other um, hospice agency that's here in town that our census our average census ran much lower than um, than those other counties that we're, we're using to compare with and so um, you know we really started to think about why why is that you know we're, we're we have the cultural cultural competency training um, we're talking to families we know this makes a huge difference we also know that our population here just because of the things that I mentioned earlier tends mm -hmm. to be a um, a sicker population because they are not um, they don't have access to as many options in healthcare and so um, right, right. we started asking ourselves because when we would have someone elect hospice that had been resistant or um, uh, families that didn't maybe a daughter didn't want us in there but brother did and brother was POA or something like that and we would see the light kind of come on right with daughter or with family member and they right, would go right. oh my god I can't believe you know this patient has been appropriate for the past five months five and a half months why weren't we getting that election period earlier um, than we were uh, getting it like two weeks before they passed or sometimes even within 72 hours you know, yeah, because they and presented you have short stay patients, right? Which is a whole different slew of problems. Right? Oh, it's especially for a small nonprofit that works. You know, it, it's harder and harder for small, just one area nonprofits. We don't have branch offices. We can't spread out our admin overhead over several counties or district offices. So we incur a lot of the costs, which makes it harder to operate. So when you have these seventy-two hour I mean, thank God we were there to help in this crisis, but right. when you're looking at the finances of a 72-hour hospice patient, it's a red hospice patient. It's not, it's not sure. in the black. 
And so if that's all you're doing, you don't have a hospice for very long. Right. And so um, we said, how do we get, how do we educate people better? And one of the things that we did when we were doing some uh, studies just with our, our referral sources, our PCPs, our hospitalists, um, SNFs, uh, acute care rehabs, was the word hospice freaks people out. You know, and that's something yeah. we had, we have, uh, we do have a large immigrant population here, and that's something we had already been talking about because, especially from Latin America, the word hospicio. Um, means an institution, a facility that you're taking away from your family. So when you mm -hmm. try to translate, if somebody's speaking Spanish to a patient and they say, you know, your physician wants hospice and they use the word hospicio, well, that has this really um, sterile institution feeling to people that have migrated here from Latin America. So we, we've changed how we, we use the term in Spanish, so we were already thinking about some of this, and um, and so they said, well, hospice scares people, and so we also said we know we're losing a lot of people that aren't ever going to elect hospice, but right. we know that they're going to the ER all the time. We know that they're staying in the hospital more frequently than they need to, and they're also going out without emotional or mental support through a terminal slash life-limiting diagnosis, you know? Right. And so we said, how do we take care of our population better? How do we take care of our community better? But our population doesn't respond well to hospice. And the other thing to do in that situation is palliative because we can still help. They can still be seeking curative treatment. We kind of, by nature of being a nonprofit, we were able to, to procure grants, um, some large philanthropic donations for the program. And so we launched. We found a nurse practitioner that was really, um, had lots of uh, experience in hospice. And, um, and so we launched the program with an NP and an LCSW, along with um, intermittent LPN um, services or chaplain services, should they need those. And so our palliative program was kind of um, born at that point. You know, I love that, that you said I didn't have any data to support, but you, you did, though. You know, we you did. did almost like a, middle, a mini environmental scan to really look at where the gaps of care were in your particular community and um, figured out that, you know, hospice was a scary uh, uh, area of health care for mm -hmm. your specific population, and you solved the problem here. And, and uh, developed a community-based palliative care program, which I love that because that's truly what community health is, is right. really looking to see where the gaps are and being the provider that fills that gap. Well, Jacob, you know, I love what you're doing, but I imagine, um, you know, this is so innovative for your area, but I imagine the implementation of a uh, community-based uh, palliative care program had some challenges. Could you talk to me a little bit about what those were? Yeah, we've had we've had a lot of challenges. I think the biggest barrier has been, as a small nonprofit, in order to get into some of these more high-level trainings, um, it costs a great deal of money to send a team somewhere else. So not only do we have to pay for the admission price to go somewhere, right. but I've got to pay for that nurse's time or that nurse practitioner's time. I've got to pay for the LCSW. Um, 
I've got to pay their way to get there. And um, it just wasn't feasible for us. So luckily we have, um, we have an outpatient clinic here, uh, not here in Taos, but in Santa Fe, which is about an hour and a half south of us. And so they were wonderful. They got on different conference calls with us. We also, the, the PHS system, the Presbyterian Health System, also has an outpatient. And they've actually started, just a little south of us now, a, a home-based palliative care program as well. Oh, great. Yeah, That's so great. we're doing a little bit of a domino effect here. The other thing is that for a home health hospice agency to break into a palliative care program, it's the billing structure, you're almost operating as if you're a primary care clinic or a primary right. care physician. So there's different PTANs that are involved that we weren't necessarily aware of. You know, we started before we even knew that we needed a PTAN. You know, we're like going back and like fixing some of the billing stuff that we did. And the billing right. is totally different in the way that like home health and hospice bill out for reimbursement. Uh, compared to how a palliative visit goes because that looks like a physician billing for an mm -hmm. office visit. So there's been and there is. I do want to say that we're almost a year, you know, we've got September, October, and we're almost a year into this program. There was and is a learning curve. We're still fixing stuff, you know. Oh, I um, imagine so, yeah. Yeah, it's been, I mean, just today I was in, a meeting with billing and you know she was like what's going on with this and I was like you know I have absolutely no clue <laughs> I'm gonna have to figure it out you know I kind of this was my baby and so they gave it to me they said okay you want it you got it manage it you know it's yours but um, the the other thing that's challenging for us is um, educating our referral sources because our referral sources tend to want to send us patients that um, that they don't know what to do with anymore that aren't really appropriate for the barometers that Mountain Home Health has set for its palliative program. And, right. um, you know, that looks different for every palliative program um, because there's, you know... The other challenge is bringing in... We brought in a nurse practitioner that had been in primary care uh, and family practice for years. And um, because of our rural setting, um, I think it's been very, they're the only uh, clinician provider. Um, I don't, I'm not talking about nurses or PTs, but, um, you know, physician providers um, in our organization. And I think we we were going to hire another one when we find somebody that kind of fits the bill for us because I think them not having that collaboration um, with another practitioner um, has also been challenging um, for them feeling like they're working in a um, on an island so to speak um, right and that's something right. that we didn't expect so I'm going to shift gears a little bit with us. I'm really, um, I'm really impressed of, of what you've done, and I wanted to know how your program has impacted your quality, um, your your quality bottom line, if you will, mm -hmm. of your uh, organization. Well, one one metric um, 
that we see that isn't necessarily our metric. It's more of the hospital's metric or that primary, we have an ACO here. So these primary care physicians really watch this return to hospital because they know, you know, every time it goes out that that reimbursement is going to get less and less. Um, one thing we've seen is patients stabilize, you know, we'll get the referral from the hospital or from the PCP. They're in the ER every month or every month and a half and then they get on palliative and now we we may have got that down to like okay they're going to the ER now we only have like gosh how many months of data 10 months of data so now they're going every four months you know and if we had a 24-7 on-call uh, provider could we you know we don't have that yet could we affect that metric in, in a much larger way could we get that four months to six months and then for folks that kind of come on to our our home health division because they can you know be doing home health and we get that sometimes they'll be on home health simultaneous to their um, palliative um, admission because they just came out of the hospital and they need both services and so we've seen our top five DRGs um, that Medicare watches we saw that, now we already had a great one. We have an incredible, and I will talk your ears off about how good we are. We have an incredible clinical product. So we were at about 7% return to hospital for those top five diagnoses. And we've, we're down to 5% at this point. Now, oh, that's great. is that correlated to palliative? I couldn't tell you off of 10 months of data and without digging further into that. But that's the only thing we've done different in the last 10 months is change our and we know we're getting sicker patients too because of the offset from pushing care off from the pandemic there's so many exciting ways that you're going to be able after a year's worth of data to be able to slice and dice it and um, see uh, what impact it might have on your other lines of, of business hospice home health mm -hmm. etc so this is very, very exciting. And um, uh, Jacob, I wanted to thank you for uh, showcasing your innovation with CHAP today. Um, and, you know, I feel like uh, you, you did it in such a thoughtful uh, way to fill that gap in your community. And I, I want to thank you for, for doing that. Do you have any last words of wisdom for us? Our, our census has grown on hospice. And so is our length of stay. We're not seeing as many of those 72-hour turnaround. Thing. And I think that's really important for hospice organizations that are struggling with those that may be considering mm -hmm. a palliative care program to maybe offset some of that. Um, we're, we're seeing our, our hospice division has stabilized a great deal since enacting and launching the palliative program. Um, I don't have any words of wisdom. I'm just really grateful uh, for the opportunity to talk about um, palliative care, uh, more importantly about Mountain Home Health Care, and to be speaking to you guys from uh, New Mexico, um, which is a beautiful, beautiful state with the most amazing people, and I, I'm just so lucky that I get a part in taking care of them. So I appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Jacob. We appreciate you coming on uh, the Chapcast. 
And thanks to all of you for taking time out of your day to plug into our podcast. And hopefully you're taking away something um, from this really innovative and rich conversation we've had with Jacob Martinez today. So thanks again to you all and stay safe and well.